ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hi, Damien Carrick with you. Later on The Law Report, an Australian woman is sent to jail for impersonating a registered health practitioner. Some of the more serious conduct related to her vaccinating uh, three individuals on the basis that she was a registered nurse and was therefore entitled to do so. That's coming up. First, the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability has handed its final report to government. This Royal Commission has been a monumental endeavour. It heard evidence from over 800 witnesses and received close to 8,000 public submissions. The final report contains 222 recommendations. Lawyer Graham Innes, who was born blind, was the Federal Disability Discrimination Commissioner for nine years. He's a current director of the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the Chancellor of Central Queensland University. Graham Innes, for you, what was most striking about this Royal Commission? For me, the most striking evidence was just the level and breadth of the occurrence of of violence and abuse that occurs in our society. I knew it was there. I've done a lot of work in this area, particularly around that space in the justice system. But the the hundreds of stories that came out of people with disabilities who had that um, experience, I think that's the striking issue for me. Now, the Royal Commission called for the creation of something called the Disability Rights Act. What is it and how would it be different from the current federal legislation which we have, which is the Disability Discrimination Act? Well, it would mirror the rights in the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, which Australia has been a signatory to since 2008, and if you like, um, change them from soft law, which is international law, to hard law, which is law in Australia. So what the Disability Discrimination Act does is that it deals with situations where people with disabilities are discriminated against or treated less favourably. What a Disability Rights Act would do would be to provide a set of rights, uh, a bit the way the human rights charters do in Uh, Victoria, Queensland and the ACT, but they would specifically be rights applied to people with disabilities. But in terms of that distinction between the Disability Discrimination Act and the Disability Rights Act, so under the current Disability Discrimination Act, if you uh, are denied employment or accommodation or access to goods and services, you you can say that is um, a breach of my anti-discrimination rights to equal treatment. But this Disability Rights Act. How is it different? It's upholding more general rights to equal treatment as opposed to the very specific employment, access to goods and service, education, accommodation, those sorts of things are spelled out in the Disability Discrimination Act? Yes. So it's upholding the various rights set out in the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, the right to education, the right to employment, the right to Commonwealth programs, uh, etc. So they are specific rights set out in the convention. So you don't have to go through the process of demonstrating that you've been treated uh, less favourably. In a particular instance against a particular, say, prospective employer or prospective uh, accommodation provider. That's right. So it might require government to set targets for the employment of people with disabilities to make out the right to employment, which of course you can't do um, or you can't enforce with disability discrimination legislation. So 
if you want to uphold your rights under the Disability Rights Act, you'd be taking action against government for, what, its failure to implement policies that it's signed up for in the Convention? Yes, that's right, rather than having to make out or prove a case of discrimination. I mean, the numbers of discrimination complaints lodged are very low in comparison over the years in comparison to the numbers of people with disabilities who experience discrimination. And one of the reasons for that, probably the main reason, is that the weight of taking those actions rests on the uh, person who's disadvantaged or potentially vulnerable, that is the person with a disability. I've been through that complaint process myself and it's achievable but um, at significant cost in terms of the the pressures and stresses that it causes. And so many, many people, the vast majority of people choose not to lodge those complaints, whereas a, um, a rights charter would set out a person's rights, sorry, a rights act, I should say, in a similar way to the, the human rights charters in Victoria, Queensland and, and ACT. And then a person would have to take action against government to enforce those rights. And interestingly, we did look at uh, the Human Rights Act or charters in uh, Queensland and Victoria last week. Can we talk about the recommendations around segregation? And, and there, there were different views among the six commissioners on segregated employment, segregated schooling and segregated housing. Let's talk about education first. The inquiry recommended the phasing out of segregated education or so-called special schools by 2051, but there was a split between the commissioners. Can you talk me through that? There were three commissioners in favour of phasing out segregation in education and then three opposed but uh, two for sort of took one position and, and the third a different position. Interestingly for me, the commissioners who took the, the position to remove segregation from our schools, two of the three were commissioners with lived experience of disability. Right back when the commission started, many of us in the disability sector were concerned about the numbers of commissioners with lived experience of disability on the commission. There were only two out of the six commissioners, and we were always uh, concerned about that. You know, if you had a, an inquiry into issues relating, for instance, to women or people of a particular cultural or linguistic background, you would think that at least a majority of those commissioners would be people of that background or women. Uh, that was not the case in this Royal Commission, and um, and many of us predicted that that would cause problems at the end of the day, and it has in the area of segregation in, in education, employment and and in accommodation. And I take it you agree with the commissioners uh, who called for a phasing out of segregated education I do. by 2051. Why do you feel very strongly about that idea? Because all the evidence shows that segregated settings for people with disabilities are less safe provide worse educational outcomes in the case of education and provide worse life outcomes in the cases of education, employment and and accommodation. And the view in support of segregation is driven by this overarching limited and negative view of people with disabilities and what we can achieve. But those of us with lived experience of disability are, are aware that that view is, is a flawed view. And that's why I uh, support the ending of segregation in the, those uh, settings. Is it a question of just making sure that everybody has a real choice about what 
they want to do, uh, whether they want to have schooling in a setting which caters specifically to people with disability or choose to be in a mainstream environment where they're kind of incorporated and uh, assisted to participate? Firstly, real choices are important. And um, if I can use the employment segregation as an example, most of the people who would tell you that they prefer to work in segregated employment settings have never experienced the alternative. So I don't regard that as a, as a real choice. But the second point is that no one without a disability has a choice to be educated in segregated schools or to be employed in segregated work settings. So I'm not sure why the the question of choice gains the level of importance that it does. But if we want to give people a choice, then we need to give people a real choice. And people need to be clear and have a clear understanding that segregated settings are less safe and will deliver worse outcomes. Let's talk about the other two areas you mentioned before, employment. Four commissioners recommended the phasing out of segregated employment, which I think you describe as sheltered workshops, um, where about 20,000 people, most of whom live with intellectual disability, can be paid as little as $2 an hour. I think the commissioners also generally recommended raising the sub-minimum wages to at least 50% of the minimum wage. What's your view of where the commission landed on this issue? You know, my view about sheltered workshops has always been in opposition. Again, they're less safe. Uh, They provide less opportunity for interaction with the other members of the community. And as well, they have the negative outcome of of delivering appallingly low wages. Um, So they're something that needs to be addressed. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm pleased that uh, at least four commissioners have recommended that, um, that we address them. Four commissioners also called for group homes to be phased out. I understand about 17,000 people, mainly people with intellectual disability, live in group homes across the country. Well, the origin of group homes is that they occurred when we closed down huge residential institutions where many people with disability were, were housed. And what we effectively did was moved most of those people with disabilities into mini institutions, which are group homes, homes where four, five and six people live in the one property. They usually don't get to choose who they share a house with, which is a unique situation. No other Australians have that experience. And they're places where um, people are often restricted in terms of their uh, movement and they're places which are inherently violent, either um, resident to resident violence or, or or there has been violence from staff. And they, again, limit people's opportunities to participate in community life. So they were the solution at the time, or they were the, the expectation at the time was that they would be a short-term solution from which people would um, move on towards living in the community. But as you say, 17,000 residents have got stuck there and, you know, eventually we need to move forward from the group home situation as the Commission has recommended to having people living in the community. And a number of the disability organisations are doing significantly positive work around this um, organisation of which I was on the board until a couple of years ago was doing a lot of work, working with residents of group homes to take them on a journey where they could at least have the opportunity to to move out into living in the community. Fundamental changes to, to education, to group homes and to employment, all of these will take uh, 
enormous resources. So now that we have the principles or, or the conclusions or the findings of the Royal Commission, we now have to have a very serious conversation about how that actually gets resourced. It's hard to predict what the resourcing cost will be in the future in comparison to what it is now. Um, I mean, if the resources that are currently put into segregated schools were made available to people in inclusive schools, um, then there probably wouldn't be a significant increase in resourcing there. And one of the reasons that um, parents want to keep kids in segregated schools is because inclusive education is not well resourced. So we need to move those resources across. And again, that's got to be a a phased process. There may or may not be um, an increase in resource use in as group homes close down. That will be dependent on um, on the sorts of uh, support that are available. But, you know, social housing generally has been very poor for people with disabilities. So there haven't been a lot of alternatives to uh, to moving out of group homes. And in the area of uh, education and employment, it may well be that there, there isn't a, a huge amount of uh, more resources required. It's just over time changing the, um, the settings in which people live. Now, Graham Minnis, there were also recommendations and findings about the way the justice system interacts with people with disability. A huge topic, but but can you walk me through what you think is most important to keep in mind? I think what's most concerning is the fact that the much higher proportion of people with disabilities who are involved or engaged with the justice system. Um, And that's probably because in the first instance, the justice system doesn't take into account the impact of uh, people with disabilities. So what we need to, as a society, try to do is keep a lot more people with disabilities outside the justice system. I mean, in, in some areas of the justice system, we don't even count how many people might be people um, with disabilities. So that would be a good start, having a, a better knowledge of people with disabilities in the system and and then starting to take into account what might um, support them to progress through the system and um, where there are the necessity for you know, jail or other, other terms, making sure that people aren't kept in the system longer than they should be because of a determination that they might be unfit to plead. Graham Minnis, in conclusion, looking to the future and the implementation of these recommendations, or not implementation of these recommendations, what do you think needs to be kept front and centre? I think what needs to be kept front and centre is the negative and limiting view of people with disabilities across society. People with disabilities experience disadvantage, um, violence, abuse and neglect across society and much of it is caused by a limiting and negative view of people with disabilities and we as a community have to change that because our justice systems reflect that community view and it's it's right across the board it's employment it's education it's justice and the justice systems it's where people live so it's right across the whole spheres of life that uh, that impact on people Lawyer Graham Innes, who was the Federal Disability Discrimination Commissioner for nine years, a current director of the NDIS and also currently the Chancellor of Central Queensland University. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Good to speak with you, Damien.
Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. You can follow us on the ABC Listen app. Now, to a legal first. An Adelaide mother has become the first Australian to be jailed for posing as a nurse. South Australian woman Alison Mybus has been sent to jail for pretending to be a registered health practitioner. She administered the flu vaccine to a surgery colleague and his parents. It's the second time the 43-year-old has been prosecuted for impersonating a nurse and administering vaccines despite having no medical qualifications. Jamie Orchard is General Counsel with the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, or APRA, which prosecuted the case. Jamie Orchard, who is Alison Mybus? Alison Mybus is a woman in Adelaide, in South Australia, who is not and never has been a health practitioner registered in Australia, whether as a registered nurse or in any other form. Um, Despite this, Ms Mybus indicated to her employer and to other people that she was in fact a registered nurse and held herself out through different types of conduct as being registered with APRA. And she applied for a job as a practice manager at a medical clinic, I think in January 2019. Now that role didn't require her to be a nurse, but that's what she put on her CV and that's what she held herself out to be. And she got that job. That's right. It didn't require her to be a nurse, but it was certainly a relevant factor for the medical centre when deciding whether to employ her. It was it was something that um, they found useful and decided to employ her in the role as practice manager under the understanding that she was, in fact, a registered nurse. And during her period of employment, which I think was about from March 2020 to September 2020, she continued to hold herself out as a registered nurse in in correspondence with with various people. Well, she held herself out in a variety of ways. First of all, by including a reference to being a registered nurse in the signature block of her emails and also by making application for other roles um, and including a suggestion that she was a registered nurse in her curriculum vitae. But perhaps some of the more serious conduct related to her vaccinating three individuals on the basis that she was a registered nurse and was therefore entitled to do so. Because in South Australia, only certain health practitioners are entitled to provide vaccinations. And by doing so, she was suggesting that she was a registered nurse. She acted as a nurse. She didn't just hold herself out as a nurse. She actually took on nursing duties or or, or nursing activity. That's right, because the law is quite clear that only certain health practitioners can provide vaccinations. So by going ahead and providing those vaccinations, you are in fact holding yourself out as being a um, health practitioner, in this case, a registered nurse. And how was her deception revealed? It came to light at the end of her employment with the practice when the practice itself identified that there was an issue and they therefore referred it to APRA. So this was the second time that Ms Mybus was prosecuted for this type of deception. What was the first instance? Well, the first instance was not dissimilar. Um, Ms Mybus had worked at a different practice and had held herself out as a registered nurse at that practice by, again, um, providing vaccinations to certain individuals. On that occasion, APRA prosecuted 
her. She was um, found guilty and convicted, and she was fined $10,500 on that occasion. So Ms Mibus has been sentenced in the Adelaide Magistrates Court for this second instance of impersonating a nurse. What sentence did Magistrate Dixon impose on Ms Mibus? So Magistrate Dixon indicated that a period of seven months imprisonment was appropriate, but applied a discount of 30% in light of the early guilty plea. That took it down to a period of imprisonment of four months and 28 days, but his honour ordered that she be released after one month of that period of imprisonment. So she's definitely spending a month in jail. What was the thinking of the magistrate in imposing a prison sentence, the first prison sentence for this kind of offence anywhere in Australia, I understand? Well, that's right. It is the first time. And I think the Magistrate Dixon took into account a number of factors that made it particularly serious in this case. First of all, he looked at the the nature of offence in it of the offence in itself and identified that the reason for the offence is the protection and safety of the public. So the offence by its very nature is a serious offence. But then he also took into account the fact that Ms Midas had previously been convicted of an offence that was almost identical in, in so far as it related to holding out as a registered nurse by vaccinating individuals. And that conduct occurred at a time when she had already started work at the the latest medical practice. And the conduct that she was convicted of on this occasion commenced almost immediately after the previous conviction. So she'd been convicted of holding out. She was fined $10,500 and continued on to conduct the same sort of conduct in the new practice. So there was a previous relevant offence there. There was also an earlier offence of uh, a fraud-related matter for which she'd received a 18 months imprisonment suspended on a good behaviour bond. So Magistrate Dixon took all of that into account. But he also considered the importance of deterrence and whether some of the suggested psychological conditions would have any impact on deterrence and decided at the end of the day that the suggestion that Ms Midas might have been suffering from bipolar uh, disorder was not made out. There was no evidence to suggest that from the psychological reports. And therefore, he considered that the um, the issues of deterrence really shouldn't be moderated as a sentencing consideration in this matter. And taking all of those factors into account, his honour decided that um, there was no alternative but a uh, period of imprisonment. So a repeat offender. What about the idea that maybe she could have had some kind of home detention? Well, that might have been open to Magistrate Dixon, but again, I think taking into account the the seriousness of the offence, the previous offending, um, and the content of the psychological reports, um, His Honour decided that an actual period of imprisonment was appropriate in this case. Now, about 18 months ago, we spoke about another prosecution for impersonating a healthcare professional. That was uh, Zhe Sin Lee. She was a medical student, a Sydney medical student, who had failed her final year of medical studies, but had gone on to work in a hospital as a medical intern, I think for 126 shifts at a Sydney hospital. Now, she received a suspended two-year sentence. Why does Jane Mibus go to jail and 
Jersin Lee avoid jail? Well, I should say right at the outset that Ms Lee appealed that sentence and on appeal the term of imprisonment to be served as a community corrections order was reduced to 18 months. But nonetheless, she didn't serve actual imprisonment. It was serving that by way of intensive corrections order. Community work and stuff like that. Uh, Yeah, that's right, yes. Now, there might be a number of reasons for that. I mean, the the most obvious reason is that in Ms Midas' case, there was a previous criminal history and a particularly relevant one given that she had been convicted of an almost identical offence at or around the same time she started the committing the new offences for which she's recently been convicted. And I think that's probably the single most significant distinction between these two cases. But that's not to say that the Ms Lee case is a light outcome. It's a period of 18 months imprisonment, albeit to be served as an intensive corrections order. So it still does highlight the seriousness and the importance of these offences. But you could argue that Sher uh, Sin Lee was working as an intern in a hospital for a long, long period of time and was doing presumably quite significant healthcare work. Whereas um, Ms Mibus was, she only inoculated a a small number of people over the period of time. The risk of things going wrong wasn't as high, perhaps, for for, for Ms Mibus. Well, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of um, looking at it is that being an intern in a hospital by um, its very nature means that there's going to be quite close supervision of the work that um, that intern is doing. They're going to be carefully monitored as they um, develop in their medical career, whereas undertaking the sort of uh, procedures that Ms Mibus was undertaking, there was no supervision at all from a health practitioner. So there is a distinction, I think, in that regard. But ultimately, I think it does come down to the fact of a a previous identical offence. Now, APRA, the organisation you work for, has a register of, of registered healthcare practitioners that, that everybody can access, including prospective employers, shouldn't there be an obligation on employers to check when a job candidate comes forward and says, I'm a registered nurse, I'm medically qualified? Surely that's an obligation which should be imposed on them. Well, it's certainly an expectation that we have that anyone who is employing a um, a health practitioner does check the register, not only at the outset of their employment, but throughout their employment to ensure that they are and continue to be registered appropriately for the nature of the work they're undertaking. But there is also an offence, and we have prosecuted people in Australia for holding others out as being registered when in fact they're not. So there is that risk for employers that if you do employ someone who's not registered and you are holding them them out to be um, registered through your their own um, conduct, then it may well be that the employer themselves could be the subject of uh, prosecution. You're talking about employers who know that the person that they're employing is not a registered healthcare practitioner, but nevertheless advertises them as such in order to attract clients slash patients. Yeah, well, that's certainly the um, the nature of the cases that we prosecuted, but it could be broader than that because the law does provide for employers who are either do it knowingly or even recklessly. So if they have no systems at all to check and make sure uh, that a person is registered but continue to hold them out as such, then they could be the subject of prosecution. 
Jamie Orchard, General Counsel for the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, or APRA. Uh, thank you for speaking to The Law Report. My pleasure. Thank you, Damien. That's The Law Report for this week. Don't forget you can follow us on the ABC Listen app. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to sound engineer Tim Simons. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. Music.